I was really, really invested in the character of uh, Raju in the, this older man, the grandfather figure. And, uh, but of course we meet him when he's a very young man. And as I'm waiting for this coup to happen 50 years later, you know, <laughs> right? It's one of those things, because if you know the history, you know it's coming up. Yeah. And then you watch him building this life, knowing that it's gonna be taken away from him, right? Mm -hmm. So he's a young man, he's got a business and all the interaction I thought with his African neighbors, his um, Ugandan neighbors were, uh, was fascinating. The, his interaction with the child, um, with, the, with the woman that he sometimes sleeps with. And I, I thought, uh, and that was, uh, a, a brilliant piece of the novel. And of course, I'm always thinking about, and now we have to think about, you know, um, people uh, of our grandfather's generation <laughs> having this kind of rich life, which is of course yeah. uh, a challenge, right? So how did you decide that he would be the main character? I mean, it wasn't just chronology, right? There was something about what he did that made him the core. A couple of uh, reasons. Um, one is that even as a child, when I would it's not a conversation we had often, but when I would ask my parents about coming to Canada and having having to leave, it was it was generally quite positive in a lot of ways. My father would talk. You know, they were they were young. They were in their thirties, healthy. Um, it was kind of a, it was kind of an adventure. You know, it was like a opportunity for a new life. But for my grandfather and his generation, it really it really was devastating. They were at a point where they were very late in life to start anew, and suddenly a, a man who had built a, a life with some pride had to be dependent. And the other thing was my grandfather lived with us in, in the last uh, few years of his life. And he died about two years after we came to Canada. So I was, I, was a, I was a kid, I was seven when he died, but he was very sweet. He would make our lunches. He'd you know, see us off to school in the morning, really gentle, a gentle, loving grandfather. Uh, but when my other relatives would come visit after he died, uh, they would talk about Mapa, as we called him, um, and what a terrifying figure Mapa was and how he was so overbearing and oh my gosh, Mapa, we would never say anything to upset him. And I, I just, it, it just amazed me. And so I was fascinated to know, like, what is the arc that a person goes through from being that guy to, to the really gentle, and he wasn't just gentle with me because I was his grandchild. He, that's just who he became at the end of his life. I wanted to just examine that arc. He's really in my mind, the, um, the soul of the book, you know, it's just sort of, we follow really watching this man become who he becomes. And as, as much as my father would describe him as a kind of, oh, it was so sad what happened to Papa. And, and I, I didn't see it that way. He became a, a really loving, flexible, open-hearted man in the end of his life. And he had been much more rigid and obstinate when he was younger. So I, so that was, yeah, that was why I decided that he was going to be sort of the main guy. And, 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 and in the case of Raju, as the book is fiction and fictionalized, but I, I really did stick historically to his life experience uh, as much as I could, um, more than any other character. And I, I also note that until the coup happens, it's uh, it, the main source of tension or conflict is, is in Raju as he adapts or doesn't adapt to the changing times, all kinds of things that have to do with the changing times. And, uh, and I think it's time to talk about gender, I think, uh, in this. And I, I'm interested in also in the, the character of Muntaz, as this young woman of, a, of another, another generation who kind of doesn't want to take all of this, all of these patriarchal orders, right? But she also knows that if she has to rebel, she has to do it kind of subtly, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I was very much enjoying her negotiations in, in you know, sort of that family of men, like with her, um, her husband and her brothers-in-law, right? Who all have 
you know, different ways that they want, think they can save the family, but she's quite determined to, to make sure the family really gets saved. Yeah, Mumtaz is, um, she's, she's smart. I did want particularly the political history in the book to, to come through the eyes of a woman. That was something I was, that, that was important to me for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm a news junkie. I, uh, you know, I was a journalist. That kind of stuff really fires me up. And, um, and in my, in my family, which um, is a, you know, I mean, it's, I, this is such a ridiculous way to put it, but it's, it's a sort of traditional South Asian family in that, um, and I say it's ridiculous because it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a generalized statement, but it's not, it's not an equal dynamic between men and women. And so growing up, the men would be in the living room if we're having a you know, family gathering uh, or friends, uh, they'd be in the living room talking politics and the women would be in the kitchen preparing dinner or but whatever they were doing, they weren't talking about politics. And, and I was always interested in that stuff. And so I, I, I felt kind of lost. And so I thought it would be interesting to have a character like Mumtaz uh, in that era. Within the Ismaili community, the women would have had quite a good education. There's, there's really no, there would have been no reason she couldn't be part of those conversations or that she wouldn't have been registering this stuff. Uh, that was by no means a leap. So she's, she can't help herself. She's interested. She's thoughtful. She's figuring things out. She's bright, but uh, in an intellectual sense, but she's also intuitive. So she's, she's able to pick up on things probably a little bit sooner than her husband, things that are going on, uh, you know, what's in the air, the shift in the air in, in uh, Uganda, those kinds of things. So she's a really useful character in terms of the, the narration, right? She can, she can really get the story across. And also it's, you know, it would have been a, a time where women were starting to sort of find their voices and, you know, birth control pill, uh, those types of things were becoming options and a little more freedoms. And, and you know, Jaffer, her husband fancied himself a pretty modern guy. So he wanted her to drive, he wanted these things, but he also bristled at times at her outspokenness. Yeah, so those kinds of those kinds of nuances in, in her character, I think, I think made it a, a more interesting telling of the story. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, speaking of uh, speaking of the men in the family, I, I noted as we moved as the book moves towards towards the seventies that the book is always concerned with money, the making of money, the spending of money, what money can do. Is money powerful, or does it put you in a more vulnerable position, etc. Right. Mm -hmm. So making it, losing it, and using it, and in some ways we see, particularly in the second generation, Uganda as a world of opportunity turned into a kind of nightmare. And money is the one way is one of the ways. Pardon me, is one of the ways that the family sees that they might be able to get out if they spend their money and make their money in particular ways. Now that's a it's a it's a big whole bunch of financial planning going on here for people trying to you know make their fortune. How did you approach this idea that sometimes what's going on in terms of making money is not 100% legal? I don't know that I would describe the book as being about making money to, or, or making your fortune. It was really for that particular family uh, that and also the larger Asian community it was a way to make a living. It was a way to, to live, right? And, and just because the Asians who, who went to East Africa largely came from Gujarat, the state of Gujarat, and they would have, and they were for the most part merchants, you know, they had shops in India. They, they wouldn't have been landowners uh, or farmers. Uh, they, they wouldn't have had the opportunity in, in Uganda to own land, uh, that, that wasn't a privilege for, for anyone from the Indian subcontinent. You can only lease land. Uh, if you were gonna come there, 
you were going to run a business, you were going to work for somebody, you were going to trade goods, you know, so that money is just how you lived. Prior to the Asians coming to uh, East Africa, there wasn't even a currency-based economy. So that the first actual money in, in Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya uh, were rupees from um, India. So the currency-based economy was was built by the Asians. And so, you know, it was how you lived. It was how you had your independence, how you had your... Um, you're privileged. You know, it was, it was a wealth, but it was still a modest wealth. It was a house, not terribly big, certainly by North American standards, a vehicle or two. Joffre had a lot of good cars because they had an automobile business. So that when, at the time of the expulsion, there was a very small amount of money that you could take out of the country. And so the thought of having to start new somewhere, essentially penniless, was, was what drove the need to make money. So that for a character like Jaffer, he wants to take care of his family. He's now, the, he's now essentially the patriarch. He needs to have the means to do it. Everything has fallen to pieces in Uganda. So uh, nothing is fair anymore. Uh, and mm-hmm. it becomes easier to, I think, let those lines between legal and illegal blur. Uh, you, uh, so I think that is behind it. And also, to be fair, in um, certainly in East Africa, there would have already been a fairly decent degree of corruption going on anyway. Like if you want any work done, you pay a little bit extra, that kind of thing. So those things were going, there was a way to sort of conduct business, right? A little, little here, a little there. And so it wasn't a huge leap to then go to illegal schemes. Um, but, I, but I think it was, I, I do think it's, it spoke more to a sense that, well, I, we got to take care of ourselves. You know, we just, we were, we feel we were cheated. And so it's kind of all fair. I, I think that's kind of what was behind it for, certainly for Joffer and the type of man he was. You know, I also think too that there is that sense of disbelief, right? The, that you have 90 days to get out of the country. And so for at least 30 days, people think, no, not, not really, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, right? And then they start to believe it maybe a little more in the next 30 and then spend the next, the last 30 scrambling, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so there, so there's that, right? That there is. A, uh, I mean, I, I like your your note that um, people people do what they had to because they were desperate, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there was the disbelief went on for quite a long time. Uh, certainly for this for this family and uh, for a lot of families. And it wasn't until there was an, a, a sort of an incursion from um, uh, forces that supported the previous prime minister Abote uh, into into Uganda from Tanzania and. Uh, Amin responded brutally, and curfews were put in place, and and then it became real that this was that it was dangerous and that it was real uh, because he, you know, Idi Amin, you, you've heard him speak. Uh, he's quite erratic and would say such ridiculous things and change his mind that it wasn't unreasonable to think, oh, you know, he'll just change his mind. I'm not going to uproot my entire family, you know, for for this man's whims. It did take some time, and then suddenly you're, you're really quite desperate, quite quickly. Yeah, I was watching him speaking to BBC journalists and they were trying to get him to say exactly what was going to happen. And he kept making jokes and laughing and saying, the British are my best friends. And I remember thinking, what, what's going on? I mean, I, I, felt, I felt for the journalists too, who were trying to figure out, you know, what, what they were going to actually report on. Yeah, um, what do you do with this guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, what did slippery. he actually say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in these these kinds of um, portrayals of Amin uh, a little later on in history. Did, did you see the, the Last King of Scotland? I did. I did. 
what did you yeah. think of, uh, of, I mean, I, I thought there was, it was interesting that we had a charismatic actor, Forrest Whitaker, playing mm -hmm. uh, Idi Amin in it, and he always seemed volatile and charismatic at the same time. And it was, yeah, um, yeah, no, he was great. My, my parents, in fact, and I, they would have had a better sense than I, I do, certainly remembering Amin, and they thought he was, he was spot on. Uh, they were quite chilled <laughs> by his performance. Uh, yeah, I thought, I thought he was, he was great. I, uh, I read the book after I, I watched the film because I, what I noticed was the, the absence of the Asian um, yes. people. <laughs> and I thought maybe they just left it out because it was a movie, but no, it, they didn't even exist in the book. So that was, there were sort of a, a number of um, moments I had leading into finally getting this book written. And that was one where I thought, okay, okay, somebody's got to tell their story. It was well done. It really got at the, the, the insanity of Amin. And uh, certainly there, uh, you wrote this at a time where there was actually quite a surge in refugee lit in, in Canadian literature. And I think of, um, Lawrence Hill's The Illegal and Sham Salvadorai's Hungry Ghosts and a number of other writers who were who were talking about um, about moments in history where you know where people had a kind of you know not just a diaspora but an actual expulsion and had to find other places to uh, to live. Yeah, I guess I, I wanted to know a little bit about you know what would a category like refugee lit mean to you thinking about about your book situated in that kind of a grouping? My sense is the books that I would think of would be more immigrant books, more um, the experience of being a first generation immigrant and, and those challenges. Like I didn't I didn't feel like I was writing a, ref, a refugee book. I mean, obviously, you know, that that what happens in the book, um, it was it was more about movement just migrants in general uh, uh, being seen in a in a poor light you know with post 9-11 just sort of viewed with suspicion I would say mm -hmm. um, people people who want to move and what do they want and you know the idea that it's just it, not recognizing that as humanity that we that we we have done this we do this all the time we always move to go somewhere to to make a better life and that was really you know it's not just as, as the family is forced to do, not, not, not always a situation where if you stay, you die. And if you go, you know, you have to go. It's also, it's also a situation like Raju where, you know, he was okay. He would have had a pretty decent life uh, living in, in Maria, this, uh, this village in, in Gujarat that might not have a lot of opportunities, but he'd have been okay. But he wanted more, he wanted something else. And, and, and that's okay, you know, that, 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 mm -hmm. that is actually a really beautiful human impulse. And I, I wanted to explore that and express and express that that it's natural and that and that it is healthy emotionally physically it's good for all of us uh, when we do this so I guess that's that's kind of where I was coming from in terms of refugee lit uh, if, if if I was at all will you uh, read from the book for us I will yes this is a section early on Raju has been living in um, in Uganda for a little while, uh, maybe a, a year or so, and his friend and mentor has arranged for him to to have essentially a, a, a conjugal visit with a uh, local indigenous with an African woman. It's not clear that whether she's being paid for this, but that's the assumption. And uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit from that. Do women enjoy this? Raju asks, gesturing towards the bed. He is standing at the open door of the shack, smoking. Grace's head is lowered, her eyes focused on her wrap, which she is adjusting. Sometimes, she says, yes. Earlier, after undressing, Grace walked towards Raju, placed her hands on his shoulders, gently pushing him back on the bed, and climbed on top of him. Raju had never been underneath a woman. 
He had never allowed a woman to control his body, to give him pleasure in this way. He had never believed it to be possible. Hussein's young son appears at the door. Grace rushes towards the toddler. She bends down so that her face is level with the boys and smiles broadly, her face forming an expression Raju has not seen before, exuding a light to which he has never been privy. Raju hears the boy's Aya calling out to him. I will take him to her, Grace says, brushing past Raju as she walks out the door, her hand tightly gripping the boys. Do you have children? He asks her when she is inside the shack. She shakes her head, looks at the floor near his feet. A husband? She runs her hand over her hair as she walks past him towards the bed. What about your father, he asks. Does he know what you do? My family lives far. But you are Manyankole, Raju says. No, she says, turning to face him. I am not from Ankole. But you speak Ranyankole, as do you. Raju feels foolish. It did not occur to him that she was not a local woman. He does not speak the language well enough to detect an accent. Nor has he perceived any differences in physical features among Africans. They are all blacks, karyas. But she is not black. There is nothing black about her, not even her hair, which shares with the African earth a tinge of red. Her skin is dark brown, very dark but it glows as though a steady fire is continually burning somewhere below it. He realizes now as he looks closely at her that her nose is smaller, wider than the noses of the Banyankole women he has met. Her eyes set closer together and deeper in her head. Why didn't your father look after you? He asks, angry now at this man's failure to protect her. Why must you do this work? She looks at him, at his eyes, she smiles, it is beatific, this smile. It does not suit her circumstances. You could work in a house, clean, look after children, he says. Would it not be better than this? Am I better than this, she asks, still smiling. Every woman is better than this. You need me and I am here. When you need water, you drink it. You don't ask it to be something better. Roger smiles, then laughs, tossing his cigarette to the ground. <laughs>